How's it going, Matt? It's great. How are you doing, man? Good. The semester's over. Hooray. We're all feeling sort of loosey-goosey here. <laughs> uh, this is Jonathan Weiler, and I'm a professor of global studies at UNC. And I'm uh, Matt Andrews. I'm a professor of history here at UNC Chapel Hill. And this is another edition of the Agony of Defeat podcast. I can't believe we're still going. We're still <laughs> we're still going, and we've gotten at least some positive feedback. Lots of positive, yeah, positive yeah. feedback. F- positive, positive feedback, feedback too. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, so the main topic today, we want to talk about the Rocky movies. Yes, uh, the original Rocky movies, Rockies one through four. We're going to skip Rocky Five because it's one of the worst movies ever made. It is indeed. And we'll talk a little bit about the uh, Creed movies that have come out in the That's last right. couple of years as well. There's a lot going on in the Rocky movies. A lot it's going more on. more than just a sports movie. That's right. That's right. Uh, so before we do that, we want to do our now traditional Agony of Defeat rant segment. Yeah, and it's not going to be me this week, yeah, right? Matt, Matt has been, Matt, Matt's been doing the heavy lifting up to now. I'm all so. rented out. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm gonna rant, and it is gonna be about Colin Kaepernick. Okay, but a little more sports focused. Okay, I'm a New York Giants fan, much to my chagrin. Um, could but be worse. The New York Football Giants. Well, yeah. that's true. You could be. Yeah, that's true. Uh, two weeks ago, I watched the Giants destroy the Washington Football Team. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we not saying? We are not saying okay. their nickname, right. the Washington Football Team, and. That's notable in itself because the Giants suck. The game was in Washington. They won 40 to 16. And a big reason they won 40 to 16 is that Washington was down to its third string quarterback, Mark Sanchez. Okay, so this is post Alex Smith breaking his leg. And post Colt McCoy breaking his Colt leg. McCoy They've had two quarterbacks leg. break their legs this yeah, year. Right. And Mark Sanchez, formerly known as the Sanchez, yeah. uh, a former high first round draft pick out of USC, a Jets quarterback who hasn't, essentially hasn't played in the NFL in years, right. uh, but was basically signed off the street. He was awful against the Giants. In limited action this year, we're going to do a little stat statistics here. His quarterback rating this year in limited action is a 28. <laughs> That's uh, 90 nowadays is average. Keaton's quarterback rating is higher than Ke- that. Well, yeah. Keaton's quarterback rating blows that out of the water. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The Sanchez's career quarterback rating is a pathetic 73. Wait, you keep calling him him, him Sanchez. Is that on purpose? <laughs> I'm making fun of oh, him. Oh, okay, guys. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So, okay, why am I bringing this up? Because Colin Kaepernick. Did you lose money on this game or something? <laughs> is that what it is? No, actually, it was like the first enjoyable football game I watched this year. All right. But, uh, I'm bringing this up because there's a quarterback in street clothes, yeah. uh, Colin Kaepernick, who last played in 2016, when, by the way, he was 29 years old and in his prime, mm-hmm. and for a terrible football team in 2016, himself had a 90.7 quarterback rating right. and has a career quarterback rating of 89. And I mention this because every year, Teams and commentators and fans complain about the dearth of decent quarterbacks in the NFL. And NFL teams have run one crappy quarterback, Mark Sanchez, Nathan Peterman, Derek Anderson, Blaine Gabbert, Matt Barkley. (laughs) I mean, these are pathetic quarterbacks who have all played this year while Colin Kaepernick 
who the worst you can say about him is that he's a mid-level starter. Yeah. The worst you can say about him. And he is in street clothes in a league that claims that all they care about is winning. Right. At the most critical position. And by the way, Washington is a game out of first place in their division. They are in a playoff hunt. Colin Kaepernick's legs alone can get you a couple of victories. And, and, and the reason I'm ranting about this, Matt, is because I actually think that we have become inured to how unusual and outrageous it is that a player in his prime yeah. has literally been blackballed from the NFL because he took a freaking knee during yeah. the national anthem. Yeah, it and every time I see one of these jokers playing quarterback, it actually makes me mad all over again. You know, Dave Zirin raised an interesting point. He, he actually said Colin Kaepernick would not play for the Washington football team because of the Washington football team's right. nickname. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, I actually saw Kaepernick. I don't know if he said this directly, but a quote attributed to him said he was available. He yeah. would play for that. I think he has to say that also because of his because lawsuit. of the collusion yeah, case. You're right about that collusion case. But he, he probably means it. But he al- right also because I mean, he he does want to play. Yeah, he's yeah. an athlete in his prime. No, you're absolutely right. It's outrageous. It continues to be outrageous. And now you've gotten me kind of riled up. Can I pile on <laughs> your your <laughs> rant? And this is related to Kaepernick as well. If Kaepernick had a sidekick in his time with the 49ers when he was taking a knee during the national anthem to protest racism and police brutality, it was the the safety, Eric Reed, hard-hitting safety for the 49ers, who the 49ers then did not re-sign, even though he is arguably all-pro caliber. Yes. Uh, he is a, 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 a ferocious hitter. A very good player in his prime also. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, young guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looked as if he was going to go the way of Colin Kaepernick. But to their credit, the Carolina Panthers, in bad need of a, of a safety a few weeks ago, signed Eric Reed, And the information just came out a couple days ago that Eric Reed has been, quote-unquote, randomly drug-tested seven times already. This Right, this so the NFL has a random drug-testing policy, which is agreed to by the Players Association. Right. There are 1,500 players on active NFL rosters. He's been there 11 weeks. He's been there 11 weeks. The typical player does not get tested once in a season, I don't think. I don't think so either. I'm willing uh, to bet Tom Brady has not been tested right. in a long, long time, for, right. for example. And he's been tested seven times. And I don't know if this is just juvenile harassment on the part of the NFL, or they genuinely want to catch him doing something and ruin his career. Right. And the probability of this having happened by chance alone, which is what random means, Right. Has got to be in the millions to one. Yeah, so the NFL just keeps stooping to a to a lower and lower level, yeah. and this is more more evidence. And this. for what, as I, you say? Yeah I, yeah, I don't know. Okay. All right. And rant. And rant. Yeah. All right. So so we want to talk about the Rocky movies. So, yeah. So let let just let's set the, set the scene a tiny bit. Sure. Um, you and I were both huge Rocky fans. We were each huge Rocky fans growing up. Absolutely. I think that's fair to say. I was nine years old uh, when the first Rocky movie uh, came uh, out, uh, and I saw it in the theater. I, I was I was eleven. Okay, and I've seen it many times since. As, as have I. We love those movies. Yeah. And as we got older... Well, do we love those movies? <laughs> yeah, okay, as we got older, as, as we got all grown up. As we got all grown up, uh, we started to ask ourselves some questions. Yeah. Uh, for example, about the racial politics of those movies. Right. 
And then with the new Creed movies that have come out these last few years, we wanted to have a conversation about the racial politics of the Rocky series. Yeah, and so I just went and saw, I thought we had a pact. We were both going to go and see Creed Two in the last week. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. I went with my daughter and my girlfriend and a few others. We saw Creed Two, And you? And, and in my defense, I, this is going to be a dog ate my homework okay. excuse. But right. it is, this is a fact. I took my daughter. We had a plan oh. to go see the movie on Saturday. We drove to South Point. Mm-hmm. We got off exit 274 and 40. Yeah, huge the mistake to go to Exit the was so, yeah. well, I, it was my fault, but yeah. it was so backed up yeah. that we couldn't even get off the exit. So I drove to the next exit, right. also so backed up, and then we turned around and we went to Bricks and we had pizza and we ate lunch and I did not see the movie. That's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried, but as he, as uh, as you told me earlier, but you got on Wikipedia and you read. The, I did get on Wikipedia, summer, and so. I feel like I could picture the movies. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I got to say, um, well, Keaton wants us to give a, a, a spoiler alert. We we may or may not reveal the ending here. Um, I I suppose we we will. So you know, fast forward a little bit if you want to uh, not hear us reveal the ending. But it's um, it's not a great movie. And, you know, as I was watching it, I, I remembered, oh, yeah, that's right. The Rocky movies actually aren't all that good. <laughs> that's <laughs> they're, right. They're actually right. pretty dumb. Right. But they're pretty interesting, too. Right. This one is interesting for for a couple of reasons. I mean, one in, in which uh, the racial script has been flipped. You know, in the in the first four Rocky movies, it's all about celebrating the great white fighter. Uh, Rocky Balboa, and in p- particularly in contrast to Apollo Creed and a, and a Clubber Lang, and so I got to give Stallone and the writers. I realize Stallone didn't write the uh, Creed movies and he didn't direct them either. But it's an interesting flipping of the script that the black fighter becomes the the central focus and becomes the person that we in the audience root for. That's right, and the director of the first Creed movie, Ryan Coogler. Yeah, he of course. Matt and I both talked about, we both read an article by Adam Serwer, who's a great political writer in the, in the Atlantic Monthly, who talked about the flipping of the script and yeah. gave Ryan Coogler credit for yeah. having kind of reimagined what the heart and soul of the story is, yeah. which is the offspring of Apollo Creed, Adonis Creed, right. who becomes the three-dimensional, complicated, central figure of, of, of the new movie. Yeah, kind of down and out in Philly, just like Rocky Balboa was when we meet him in the, in, in the first Rocky film. So why don't we go back to the Rocky films, because the biggest critique that I have of Creed II, I think you need to know a little something about the, the yeah. Rocky films first. So if you've never seen Rocky, well, shame on you. I mean, because it's a Rocky Balboa is an American cinematic icon. It's a it's a classic movie. And and you got to give Stallone credit. It's easy to make Sylvester Stallone the butt of a lot of jokes, but between Rocky Balboa and his his character in in the first blood Ram, films, Ram, John Rambo, Ram, John Rambo. He's got two of the most iconic cinematic figures of my lifetime. Kind of amazing. Yeah, and they're cartoon characters at times, and they're ridiculous often. But he really tapped into some uh, social undercurrents just, when he made these films. Just, Matt, just and just one more point yeah. uh, on that score. The story goes that Sylvester Stallone wrote the script for Rocky. Mm-hmm. 
started shopping it to studios. They really liked the script. I mean, he wrote that thing, right. and it, it's a good script. Yeah. And he said, I will only sell you the script if you make me the star of the movie, which they did not want to do. He wow. has like this little speech yeah. impediment, yeah. and you know, he's not necessarily the best actor in the world. <laughs> no, he's not. But, but he, he made his career right. by doing that. Yeah, so. I mean, to that point, when we were watching Creed 2, it's the first Rocky movie that my daughter had seen. Whenever Rocky Balboa would talk, my daughter would look at me and say, like, what is wrong with this guy? It's like, that's the way he talked. You Adrian. Yeah. Well, anyway, if you've never yep. seen, the the first two Rocky movies are interesting. They're, they're films in which a, a fictional white Italian-American boxer, Rocky Balboa, fights the brash, cocky, talkative, Heavyweight champion who is black, yes. Apollo Creed. L- 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 he's, yes, he said talkative, absolutely. Yeah, yep. and, and Rocky is a heavy underdog. I don't think we need to do a spoiler alert here. Rocky is a heavy underdog in the first film. He takes Apollo Creed the distance, though he does not win the fight. He's not just a decision. heavy underdog, right? He's an unknown, he's an unknown. club he's fighter. Plucked out of nowhere. Who for a spectacle, Apollo Creed and his people because he was an Italian-American, and it's 1976, and they want to celebrate the bicentennial. Yeah. They give him this ridiculous shot at a heavyweight They give champion. the ultimate underdog right. the opportunity, right. and, and and he loses in a split decision. Yes. I mean, he loses the fight, but he wins. Right. Uh, in Rocky. In, 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 a, in a bloodbath. In a bloodbath, right? yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, and Rocky Two is even more of a bloodbath. In Rocky Two, he knocks out Apollo Creed in uh, one of the most implausible boxing scenes <laughs> ever filmed. Right. They both go down for the count. They both go down, but only one man And Rocky up. stands up yeah. at, at the nine count and wins the fight. And these were both very popular movies, but these movies are not just about sports. I mean, these movies are really about race and American history, about race in the United States. Though, though fictional characters, these fighters clearly are supposed to represent real people. Something that was completely lost on me when I saw that. Uh, of course, we were, at, we, at we, we were kids. Yeah, I was too too young. Although I imagine most people, most adults and sports fans, when they saw it, understood what was going on here. Apollo Creed is Ali. He is Muhammad Ali. He is brash. He is cocky. He's talkative. He's annoying. You know, that's the way a lot of people thought about Ali. Uh, and he's black. But also, it's worth saying, Matt, that he's all of those things, but shorn of the politics. Yeah, that's true. Right? He's just a charismatic entertainer. Yeah, right. There's and nothing more to him. He's than an that. entrepreneur. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and which is why he gives Balboa this opportunity. It's going to be a good sell. Right. It's going to make right. for a right. for a good fight. Right. So Apollo Creed is Muhammad Ali in all his brashness, uh, maybe not in all his brashness, but um, Rocky is a combination of fighters. I think he's clearly supposed to evoke memories of Rocky Marciano. No question. Same name. And, you know, from the perspective of the 1970s, Rocky Marciano was the last white American to be heavyweight champion. And when Ali was dominating the fight game, rising through the ranks and then defending his his title when he comes back after the federal government trying to put him away in, in federal prison for refusing to be inducted into the armed services. Throughout all of Ali's victories, there were always Americans out there, white Americans, who said, yeah, but you know what? He never could have beaten Rocky Marciano. Mm-hmm. You know, Marciano would have taken him down. And so in these Rocky fights, we get Rocky Marciano versus... Muhammad Ali. I think it's a little more complicated than that. I think Rocky Balboa is also supposed to represent Joe Frazier, 
Joe Frazier being from Philadelphia. The Philly fighter. Joe right. Frazier, who actually trained uh, by hitting slabs of meat. And Rocky Balboa very famously trains by, by, by hitting meat. And Frazier, you know, in the early 1970s was the foil to, to Ali. Right. Ali mocked his intelligence, yeah. right? It, yeah. Actually, in pretty disturbingly yeah. racialized terms, yeah. also. Yeah, right? Ali's a complicated figure, and he, he treated Frazier poorly, but the way. One of the reasons why he did it is that Frazier refused to be political. He refused to take a stand on civil rights. He refused to take a stand on the war. And, you know, Ali's basic like, stand— Like George Foreman, right? Another great black fighter of that era. Yeah, yeah, who, you know, right or wrong, was sort of thought to be a, a red, white, and blue patriotic American because he waved the American flag in 1960. And Ali went after these guys. Yeah. And so all those fighters kind of come together. So let's add one more. Sure. Chuck Wepner. Okay, go ahead. Who I think Sylvester Stallone himself has said helped influence his conception of Rocky Balboa. Right. Who is this lumbering white fighter from Bayonne, New Jersey, who has one of the great nicknames <laughs> in boxing history. <laughs> he was known as the Bayonne Bleeder. Yeah, yeah, not a good, <laughs> yeah, good, not, not a good nickname. So I think you, we can add him to the mix. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so he's all these guys. And the way I read the Rocky movies now, not the way I read them when I first saw them, but the way I read them now, is that Rocky 1 and Rocky 2, it's white America's revenge fantasy against Muhammad Ali. So many white Americans wanted him to lose because of his brashness, because of his religion, because of his political views, because of his political activism. Never could really take him down. He's taken down in these well, these well, and and Matt, the inversion of the racial script, yeah, in the first Rocky movie is kind of breathtaking, right? So the black fighter is rich, yeah, he's well educated, right. he's surrounded by material wealth and well being, yeah, and the white guy, the working class ethnic white guy, yeah. The heart and soul of the Nixon backlash. And this is the 1970s. It's the 1970s. Is this down and out Philly fighter who lives in a in a walk up tenement? Yeah. Who's a collector for a loan shark to make extra money? Right. I mean, it could not be more sort of contrary right. <laughs> to racial reality in the United States, except that it reflects so well what so many whites, I think, were feeling then. I think so. He tapped in to the frustrations that many white Americans had about their own diminishing economic position, which many people just very reflexively and inaccurately blamed on African Americans. And the welfare state. The welfare and all state, that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tapped into resentment against affirmative action, tapped into resentment against busing. You know, Rocky Balboa doesn't talk about these no. things, but the status of white men at least the way they perceived it in the 1970s, it was on the way down. And so they root for this great white hope, Rocky Balboa, to re redeem them, um, which he ultimately does. Yes, and another layer is that the white fighter is not all that naturally gifted. Yeah, right. What makes him great is his grit, yeah, and his determination. He's tough, and his yeah. incredible work ethic. He yeah. wakes up at four o'clock in the morning and drinks raw eggs. And he goes and, for a jog, and he goes for <laughs> a jog. Can't imagine that. Yeah, and the black fighter is just this perfectly sculpted guy who you never really see training. Yeah, I guess right? that's true. Um, I, I have a a quote for you. 
reading more about Rocky One and, and Rocky Two, I came across an interesting article with Roger Ebert, right? The famous film critic from, uh, was it Chicago Sun-Times, yes, I think? Siskel and Ebert. Siskel yeah, and Ebert, yeah. yeah. And Roger Ebert watched Rocky Two with Muhammad Ali, wanted to know what Muhammad Ali's reaction was. Let me read you Ali's reaction. And I, you know, Ali is a complicated figure. He's controversial. He doesn't always do what I consider to be the right thing, though he usually did. That guy was smart. And listen to what Ali had to say about the Rocky movies. Right, so he just watches this. this so this movie. is 1979, yeah, which so is, is when Rocky II came out. Rocky II has come out, and he just watched Rocky Balboa defeat Apollo Creed, which is him. And their rematch from the first movie. And he said this. For the black man to come out superior would be against America's teachings. I have been so great in boxing that they had to create an image like Rocky, a white image on the screen, to counteract my image in the ring. America has to have its white images no matter where it gets them. Jesus, Wonder Woman, Tarzan, and Rocky. That is awesome. I know. Isn't it? I mean, that talk is, about nailing it. That is awesome. White America has to have a white champion. They can't get it in the real world, so they invented it. Kudos to Gene Siskel for watching that movie with Ali. Ebert. Uh, oh, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, this yeah, this yeah. is Roger Ebert, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Kudos to him to, for yeah. watching that movie with Ali and then. And, and asking him yeah, this, yeah, this yeah. question. I just think it's. Uh, yeah. it, a sign of, of, of Ali's brilliance. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Matt, you wanted to say something about um, Cooney and Holmes? Yeah, so this takes us to Rocky Three, I, I guess. Rocky Three comes out in... 1982. Uh, 82. So this was right in my wheelhouse. In 1982, I was 14 years old. I remember going to see this movie with all my friends. Matt, can I tell you, I went to see this movie probably four times yeah, the first I, week it came I out. I probably did as I was well. a senior in high school. Okay. I loved Eye of the Tiger, yeah. the, the opening song. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I, yeah. I guess I was probably a freshman or a sophomore in high school. We went and saw it over and over and over. In Rocky Three, Rocky fights an even more brash, super menacing black fighter, Clubber Lang, played by— Played by the great Mr. T. The great Mr. T. is. For, I, I think this was pre-A-Team, and this was his— It was. This, was his, this is what launched him to start. Yeah, and it was— a. Um, in Rocky Three, he loses to Clubber Lang originally. Wait, before that, yeah, go we ahead. have to note yeah. that in the run-up to their first fight, right. and Rocky's manager, Mickey, Mickey is yeah. begging him not to fight Clubber Lang because he's going to lose. Right, he knows Clubber Lang. And Clubber Lang confronts him in public. And, of course, what does he do when he confronts him in public? He tries to get all hot and nasty with Rocky's wife. Exactly. He said, hey, woman, how about a, I'm a real man. Yeah. It's it's. Probably the lowest moment in the Rocky films. I think that's when Balboa I think plays that's a fair statement. on that tired trope of antagonistic black male sexuality. Yeah, um, but you know it, it goads Rocky into the fight. There's a lot of drama around this fight. Mickey, well, Mickey dies basically, and we learn that he's Jewish. We learned that, that who's point. Jewish. That Mickey was Jewish because uh, talk to me, man. Well, I, because I, I, because I at the service. Rocky actually says the mourner's Kaddish, the Hebrew prayer for the dead. Oh, I didn't know He this. actually is speaking Hebrew huh. with Sylvester Stallone's diction 
is a doubly fascinating. Oh, really? No, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, this one right over my Yeah, no, if, you, head. if you're I, Jewish, this was a big moment in the Rocky series. I, I grew up Catholic. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was pretty confident Rocky was Catholic. Yeah, yeah um, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. 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 Well, so so they, yeah. they um, he loses the first fight, and then Apollo Creed comes and, and, and trains him up. Essentially teaches them how to be a black fighter. They this go back. They go back to South Central L.A. They go back to L.A. where Rocky learns to be black. Right. Uh, and then with you know imbued with this blackness, he yes. suddenly he's able to defeat the right. great black menacing fighter, Clubber yeah, Lang. Rocky was a lumbering fighter who yep. learns fancy footwork. That's right. And yeah. fast hands. He learns the and, shuffle. Yeah. And all in a matter yeah. of weeks. Amazingly <laughs> it's, enough, it's pretty amazing. But it, it, that fact I, I want to bring up again when we talk about Creed Two, because Creed Two actually misses a ridiculous storyline. Okay, let I me think. say a couple of quick things about Clubber Lang. One okay. thing I want to give, I guess, the movie credit for sure. is that one of the themes in all of the Rocky movies is that once you become successful, you lose your edge. Yes. And to the credit of Rocky Three, they tell that story about Rocky versus Clubber Lang. Right. So for the first time you see Rocky's opponent training. Out-training him. Out, uh, training hard. Yes. Working hard. Yes. Living in austere conditions. Yes, right. right. Whereas Rocky's dedicating statues and... He's fighting Hulk Hogan in the ring. Yeah, and, yeah. 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 So, so, so I... He I, becomes Apollo Creed to an extent. That's right. At the start and and Clubber Lang becomes Rocky in, in a yeah, way. That's right. So I'll give him yeah. a little credit for that. Well, okay, and then this fight comes out in the summer of 1982. Coincidentally, there is a huge prize fight in the summer of 1982. I think it's America's last great sort of interracial mm. prize fight. Mm. There's a long mm. history of black versus white in boxing in the United States. Um, and in 1982, Larry Holmes, who is the champion, who is black, fights an up-and-coming white fighter, an Irish-American named Jerry Cooney. Larry Holmes was a very, very good fighter. Um, uh, he, he was, he's a victim of bad timing. He came right after right. He's, Ali. He, he's the first great post-Ali fighter. Yeah, but he was not as charismatic as Ali. I mean, who is? Right. No one's as charismatic right. as Ali. And so he just didn't get the And he beat Ali respect. very late in Ali's career yeah. when Ali was a shadow of his Ali former Ali never self. should have come back. And yeah, Holmes just, just dominated him. Cooney is an Irish-American fighter. He's an okay fighter. He's big. He's strong. He, he has a knockout punch just like Holmes does, but there's no two ways about it. The reason why Jerry Cooney was in the ring against Larry Holmes and why he rose to prominence so quickly is that he's a white fighter, right? He's a great white fighter. Now, remind me, was he left-handed, Jerry Cooney? Like Rocky was in the first film. Rocky fought right-handed yeah. in the second film. Yeah. Right, or is it the other way around? I'm not sure. I don't, rem- I don't okay. think so. I don't okay. think he's a southpaw. Okay, okay. Yeah. And so this fight was publicized as an interracial fight. Don King, who put that fight on, was very clear about it. He would tell anyone who would listen, this is a black and white fight. And as a 14-year-old kid watching this fight, you know, thinking back to who I was, and I, most of my friends were, were white, and I wanted to fit in with my friends, and I read in the newspapers, if you're white, you like Jerry Cooney, I remember rooting for Jerry Cooney. I, I, I was 16, fight. and I also rooted for Jerry Cooney. I mean, Jerry you Cooney. know, Malcolm X has that famous line about we have been bamboozled when it comes to race, and I got bamboozled. Mm-hmm. I fell for it hook, line, and, and, and sinker. Although I will say I became a bit of a, of a Holmes fan that night. Let me tell you a couple interesting things that you may or may not know about this fight. 
Um, first of all, there was so much racial drama around it that the entire arena was surrounded by snipers. The Las Vegas Police Department had snipers there. White supremacist groups had announced they would shoot Holmes if he won the fight. And black militant organizations said they would be armed and in attendance in case Larry Holmes was attacked. So you want to talk about you know racial drama. You're just reminding me, Matt, that as Hank Aaron yeah. was making his final assault on Babe Ruth's venerated all-time home run record. Great point. This is in 1974. He got an extraordinary stream of death threats from fans all over the country. How could you and were dare yeah. to assault this great American record. Because here we right, here we so, have a black athlete who is going to unseat a white athlete yeah. and many white Americans can't can't handle it. Yeah. Um, all right. This one I think is a more interesting fact. Jerry Cooney's dressing room had been equipped with an outside phone line that went to the White House. So he could receive receive a congratulatory call from the President of the United President States. President Reagan. This Ronald would be at Reagan. the time. Uh-huh. There was no such phone line put in the dressing room. Of Larry Holmes. That is an awesome tidbit. We can talk about Reagan and race all day long, but I think yeah, that's yes. a revealing, yes, a revealing fact. One last thing. Once both fighters were in the ring, the ring announcer introduced Larry Holmes, the champion, first. Which never happens. Never happens. It never happened before. I can't, I, I can't think of it ever happening since. The champion is always introduced last. He's always given the honor of being introduced last. They gave Jerry Cooney the honor of being. You don't think the ring announcer just got confused? No, I don't. (laughs) I don't know who told him to do it. Um, Somebody. He didn't do it on his own. Yeah, exactly. And and Cooney got a much louder ovation. The fight took place in Las Vegas in front of about 32,000 people. It was a pro-Cooney crowd all the way. The two fighters came together. The referee gave them their instructions. And I will never forget, despite all of the racial BS that was swirling around this fight, Larry Holmes looked at Jerry Cooney and said, let's have a good fight. And I, I vividly remember that. I remember thinking to myself, that is awesome. Maybe I should be rooting for that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when it began to turn for me. Yeah. And it was a great fight, actually. Cooney fought a great fight. But he was no Larry Holmes. Larry Holmes was the far superior fighter, and Holmes knocked him out. I think it was in the 14th round. Do you remember those those vicious shots below the belt that, yes, the, that Jerry Cooney that's gave right. Larry Holmes? That's right. As Cooney got tired, he couldn't keep his arms up, and he hit Larry Holmes square in the groin at least two times. And he was a tall fighter. He was a tall... Yeah, I'm not making excuses, no. but he was a tall fighter. They were both, and, b- both yeah, big guys. I mean, yeah, Holmes was yeah, doubled over yeah. in pain. The fight had to be stopped a couple times. His trainer... I vividly remember his his trainer reaching around and vigorously massaging Larry Holmes's genitals during this this fight. Interesting. I, I became a man that night watching this, <laughs> I'm, I'm here to tell you. Now, this is, by the way, when we still had 15-round fights. Yes. Because it was later that year... That Ray Mancini. Was that the same year against I du- believe it was also 1982. Against Dooku Kim? That Dooku Kim, the Korean fighter, yeah. in the 14th round was knocked out and then slipped into a coma and died a few days later. You know, if you're yeah. a boxing fan, you miss rounds 13, 14, and 15 because that's when the guys who were in supreme shape would demonstrate it. 
But if you're a human being and you don't want to see someone killed in the ring, I it's, guess you're glad. That, yeah, it's that, a good time to stop. It's that. a good yeah. time to, to yeah. stop. Anyway, so all that stuff was swirling around. That that's Rocky Three. Yes. You wanna... Well, so you wanted to you wanted to make a point about Creed Two related to what we've been talking about in terms of Clubber Lang and Rocky Three. Yeah, I think maybe we should do Rocky Four. You want to do Rocky quick. Four yeah, first? Okay. Is Rocky Four worth a discussion? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So right. So Rocky Four comes out in 1985. Yeah. We're still in the Cold War. Yes, we are. And Rocky and Apollo Creed are now buddies. And a new fighter emerges on the scene, Ivan Drago. Ivan Drago. The Siberian Express. Yeah. This massive Aryan. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what way to describe him? Yeah. yeah Played play by Dolph Lundgren, who I assume is Swedish. Who is Swedish? Yeah, but and he... I think is like a. I mean, incredibly intelligent guy. And yeah. um, anyway, and, and we won't get into the whole ridiculously convoluted plot line, but Apollo Creed challenges Ivan Drago, is killed in the ring by Ivan in Drago. In an exhibition fight. In an exhibition yeah. fight, which Rocky was managing. Right. Ah, I should have thrown in the towel, Rocky. Right. And then, yeah. but Apollo Creed told him, don't throw in the towel no matter what. And so then Rocky has to take his vengeance against Ivan Drago. And as we talked about a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Czech gymnast. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, training in the wilderness in 1968. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Rocky travels to Siberia and basically figures out a training regimen based on hauling boulders and chopping wood. Every Rocky movie has <laughs> an amazing training montage. That's right. And none of them come close to the training montage. <laughs> this, this, is, this is the best of all. Well, it's it, yeah. it, because, once again, they show both fighters. We see the right, Soviet right. fighter who's hooked up to machines and he's being injected with drugs. And, you know, it's a play on all of the anxieties and all of the fears that Americans had about Soviet and Eastern European right. athletes at this time. They are machines. And let me, this is its own crazy inversion because the Soviets are portrayed as this incredibly advanced, rich, technological <laughs> society. Right, scientifically and poor little America in 1985 yeah. <laughs> with the world's largest nuclear arsenal yeah, that, that's is, you know, like this 19th century pioneering well, that's what little house on the prairie. <laughs> Rocky's in Russia, but what he essentially does is he goes to the American wilderness. I mean, that's exactly. the idea. And he runs up mountains in the snow and he chops woods and he lifts rocks. And he ultimately gets to win the fight because he's the more authentic fighter. In, an, in an absolute brawl. Yes. Uh, at the end of which, very importantly, Rocky in 1985 ends the Cold War because he gives a speech about how we can all get along. And Mikhail Gorbachev is in the crowd. That and is when the Cold War ended, right? It, it, 1985? <laughs> I, 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 when, well, when I Rocky think the, there's a few footnotes after that, but for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, that, so, so that's Rocky IV. Rocky IV is a ridiculous movie, but as a, as a cultural product, I mean, if you think of Cold War movies. You got Doctor Strangelove. You got The Manchurian Candidate. Right. Red, Red Dawn is kind of a, Red Dawn, kind of a yeah, favorite of mine. Yeah, yeah. And 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 Rocky and Four. Rocky Four. I mean, right, you can right count the there. Vietnam movies as Cold War movies, but you know, U.S. Soviet movies. Those are the ones. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So okay, so we've talked about what Rocky changes in all of these movies. You know, in Rocky Two, because he has a has a damaged eye. He learns to fight as a right-hander, right? Am, am I getting this right? He's a southpaw. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and Mickey, his trainer, says you learn you need to learn to fight right-handed, and that's part of the drama. How does Rocky change himself and fight right-handed? 
In Rocky III, he has to learn to be black, right? Apollo takes him to South Central and teaches him how to be a black fighter. In Rocky IV, you know, Rocky needs to get primal. Um, he needs to learn to be more human than, than Ivan Drago, um, who is in Creed II, right? I mean, it's Drago's son, Victor Drago, that Creed is fighting. Yvonne Drago is great in this film. I'm not going to ruin it for you because I know you're going to see it. But that, that notion of throwing in the towel that comes into play. I, it's, it's I, actually, I read that in the Wikipedia It's entry. actually kind of sweet, yeah. I think, in Creed yeah. II. My beef with Creed II, I went and saw it with, um, I told you, a bunch of people. I asked my my non boxing loving girlfriend to to score it on a, a, a scale of one to ten she and gave she gave it a three a three yeah and I was like Ooh, that's a little harsh she had this semi-radical feminist critique that it's all about mothers and how much people hate women um, there there is an interesting mother dynamic in this in this film that I that I choose not to talk about right now what's missing in this film is there is no transition in this film between the first fight with Creed and the second fight with Creed, the, well, the Creed-Drago fights. We, we won't say who wins which one. Well, when you say no transition, what do, what do you mean? There's no transition like we have in Rocky II where Rocky learns to fight right-handed or he learns to fight black or he learns to go back into the wilderness. There's, there's no transformation. Transformation is the better, is, mm -hmm. is the better term. Mm -hmm. So as a boxing fan, I don't understand the outcome midway through the film versus the outcome at the end of the film. There was no narrative arc there where someone had to transform themselves, reinvent themselves as a fighter in order to win or lose now, the fight. having, again, not seen the movie, having, yeah, having failed It's really to, getting in the way of our conversation. Having right, failed to have seen right, the movie, right a question. Yeah. I am struck by the fact that a new Creed movie comes out in 2018. Mm -hmm. The Russians are once again our enemy and they become yeah. the antagonist in this movie. Yeah. And I'm curious to know the degree to which Victor Drago and the Russians are portrayed using like the stereotypical tropes of Russians sort of circa today. Well, it's so, not a sophisticated film. Um, yeah. No, understood, but right. is, is there anything that... I think sort of, what's, what's most interesting about this film is the humanity that we see between Ivan Drago and Victor Drago. Okay, they, so they so they grant that in other they words. They do grant it and their their relationship is complex and their relationship is actually sort of sweet at the end. So, you know, you, you think about Rocky 3 for example, Clubber Lang is vanquished and he goes away. I mean, we just never see him again. It's as if he never existed. That doesn't happen in Creed 2. And the first Creed movie, which I did see... Which I thought was great. Which was really good. Yeah. And and you can tell me whether you think this is a fair characterization of the second movie. One of the things that I think is generally an improvement in the Creed movies over the Rocky movies is that the characters in general are just better drawn. They're just more... Yes. They're more complicated people. And, Absolutely. And you're saying that about the Drago's relationship... Yes. ...sounds like it's in that vein. Well, I think the characters are drawn well in Rocky... Um, yes, agree, agreed. Creed's a bit of a stereotype, uh, yeah. obviously, but yeah. um, but the rest of the but yeah. Th then the movies, be everyone becomes a cartoon character. Yeah, you know, yeah. Rocky two yeah. on um, yeah. Creed. I think gets back to a sophisticated and nuanced portrayal. Right. Of, of and, and part of this is because the star of the Creed movies, Michael B. Jordan, yeah. is just a great actor. Great actor. Right. Yeah. So. 
Um, now, Sylvester Stallone, we will note, yes. in the first Creed movie, actually won an Oscar, or was nominated for an Oscar. Only for nominated? For he was okay. nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Best Supporting Actor, actor. Okay. Which I think was his first, well, I don't know if it maybe he was nominated for a Best Actor he did get one for Rambo First Blood Part Two. <laughs> he should have. He was outstanding in yeah. that. When single-handedly he destroyed the Vietnamese army, that one. <laughs> With yeah. the most fabulously oiled pectoral muscles <laughs> I have ever seen. Which you need if you're going to take on the Vietnamese yeah. army. Let me yeah. say something about Stallone. Let, let, let's bring Stallone sort of out of the Rocky movies and sort of talk about him as a, as a real person. Someone who's a he's a... He's he's a fan of boxing, a fan of the fight game, and I think he's you know something of a boxing historian. He's obviously um, done his his research. Um, it was just earlier this year, or was it last year? I'm getting my. I no, think it, it was this year. It was 2018. Yeah. Where Donald Trump pardoned Jack Johnson. That Donald Trump, by the way. That Donald Trump. I, let me go back a little bit. We're talking about Rocky as a great white hope. The term "great white hope." really kind of comes up uh, in, in, in boxing history to describe a slew of white fighters who are trying to unseat Jack Johnson as heavyweight champion of the world. Jack Johnson is the first um, African-American fighter, the first black heavyweight champion. He becomes heavyweight champion in 1908, and all of these great white hopes come out and try to unseat him. And he's depicted as the ultimate black menace. Yeah, right? uh, yeah. I mean, federal laws are passed about bringing women across state lines because Jack Johnson had white girlfriends. Jack Johnson had white girlfriends. And he's ultimately, it's, it's a complicated case, but he is completely railroaded and he's convicted of violating the Mann Act in, in, in 1912. And he flees the country. He ultimately comes back to the United States in 1920 and he serves a year in federal prison, right? And he dies in the um, middle of the century and he has this on his record, the fact that he is a, a, a felon. For quite a while now, for a dozen years or so, members of, of Congress, it was John McCain and Edward Kennedy who first proposed it, they asked George W. Bush to pardon Jack Johnson, posthumously pardon him, merely a symbolic move. George W. Bush did not do it. They asked Barack Obama to pardon Jack Johnson. Barack Obama did not do it. I, th I thought he might, but he, for whatever reason... He, he didn't do it. It seemed to me there was no way in hell Donald Trump was going to pardon Jack Johnson. But just to show you what a wild card that guy is, he has a conversation with Sylvester Stallone, who tells him the Jack Johnson story. He quickly, you know, blurts out in a tweet, I'm thinking about pardoning Jack Johnson. And everybody's like, what? I know. I, I thought there's no way in hell he's going to do it, especially when he finds out it was John McCain's idea uh, first. And then he goes and he does it, you know, which was the right thing Absolutely. to do. And so why did it happen? Because Rocky told Trump to pardon Johnson. And Trump respects famous entertainer type people. I think that's exactly what uh, is, Until right? they start criticizing him. Right, right. And of note, he pardoned Jack Johnson on the exact same day he told the press that NFL players who take a knee should get out of this country. You know, so I'm going to pardon this black athlete um, because he was unjustly treated. But I want all NFL players who take a knee to get the hell out of my country. The man's a paradox. <laughs> That's the nicest thing I've ever said. He's a paradox. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was fun, Matt. Anything else you want to say about the 
No, I think that's it. Um, you know, again, I think the conversation would have been better had you seen the film. Um, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. But uh, let's revisit maybe something we, we, we talked about last time. Yeah, we want to do for our after further review segment this yeah. week. We want to talk a little bit about the aftermath. Well, at least for now, the aftermath of the extraordinary story of the Silent Sam Confederate statue on this campus, which... Which remains in a box. Which remains in a box and will for the foreseeable future, it appears, um, after a very tense and challenging couple of weeks on this campus, which we definitely don't want to make light of. But one of the things that I think we're both interested in is the role that some UNC athletes current and former played in this story. Uh, A bunch of current athletes uh, signed a petition expressing their dismay at any attempt to restore the statue to this campus at all. Uh, And then several former former UNC players, uh, an NBA player, some current, some former. Harrison Barnes. Vince uh, Carter. Carter, who uh, unbelievably Uh, is still in the NBA. uh, Yes, unbelievably. (laughs) Jerry Jerry Stackhouse. Issued very powerful, strongly worded statements, which at least some reporting suggests played a pretty important role in influencing the Board of Governors to reject Hmm. the most recent plan uh, to put the statue back on campus in a history and education center. Well, I thought that their statement was um, inspiring. I mean, they, they didn't just talk about being... Tar Heels, and they didn't just talk about being basketball players. They talked about being African American. Yes. They talked about being black men on a campus that had a statue that offended them. And, and how much this campus, how much it leverages black men, yeah. black athletes yeah. to promote the reputation of the university, and how much they are happy to be part of that effort yes. until now. Yeah, well, right? and, and what actually I was very surprised, and I thought it was great that they did it. They actually took a shot at their former coach or the current coach and said that Roy Williams is not doing enough. Right. Um, he then kind of came out and said he was against the statue. I mean, what he really said was it was divisive, and so he didn't want a divisive symbol um, on this campus. This is a story that's not going away. I think it's interesting that the Board of Governors is going to release, uh, the next time they're, they're going to pronounce upon this subject is in the middle of March. Gee, is there anything that happens in March? Uh, on <laughs> Of interest on this of campus? Of interest on this campus? <laughs> hmm. I think the timing is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. March 15th is when the new plan has to be brought to the Board of Governors for the disposition of the statue. Yeah. And of course, that will be the beginning of March Madness. So I think there's going to, I think the, the mm. basketball team, the basketball players, I think that the coach who just uh, re-upped for another eight years, uh, Coach Coach Williams, they, they can play a role in this. So before we sign off yeah. um, and related to this point, a big shout out to historians, my friend's profession. Yes. Uh, We all know, because of historians, that the statue was dedicated in 1913, Mm -hmm. and at its dedication, 
one of the most vile, racist rants, I don't know what else to call it, right. sure, yeah. that, that, we, that we have documented was yeah. issued at its dedication. By Julian Carr. By Julian Carr. And yeah. we know that because of the work of historians on this campus. Yep. So much so. Graduate students. A graduate student, that's yeah. right. Who uncovered this just a few years ago, yeah. as I understand that's it. Right. Yeah. And so when Roy Williams spoke somewhat obliquely at this press conference a couple of weeks ago, he specifically said, he looked off to, I don't know, a sports information director and was mm -hmm. like, when did that statue go up? 1913? Yeah. I mean, it's incredible that he knew that. And he then said, well, and I don't know what, what the motive for dedicating the statue was then, but that really was Roy saying, I do know what the motive was. Yeah. And that calls into question what its purpose is on this campus. So I, I, when I heard him actually get the year right, my first thought was, good job, historian. Historical education. Because that's become a huge part of the entire discussion and protest on this campus and a major weapon yeah. in the hands of those who don't want the statue back on campus. Absolutely, yeah. All right, well, this was fun, Matt. It was fun. So uh, until next time, I'm not sure we know what the next topic is going to be. I have no idea. But we know it's going to be a good one. Yes. Uh, so if you like Agony of Defeat podcast, be sure to like, listen, and subscribe. Like, share, and subscribe. You are listening. Uh, on SoundCloud and iTunes. And I was about to say wherever podcasts are archived but that's not really true that's not even close to true yeah yeah, yeah. so all right. all right well thanks again all right